Stephen Cox was well-regarded around the community in Medford, Oregon, where he grew up. So when he pitched investment opportunities to his friends and neighbors with a 20 to 24% turnaround, they trusted him. Sometimes with every cent they had. But some things are too good to be true, and they had no way of knowing that in 1984, Stephen Cox would disappear, as would the cool 3.5 million the community had invested with him. Join me. You may be able to help solve a mystery. Welcome to You Solved a Mystery. Hi. Hello. This is a podcast where we delve into solved segments of the iconic Unsolved Mysteries and reveal the final chapter. I'm Athena. And I'm Chandra. And we're twins. That's the explanation if we sound exactly the same. The case I have today first aired on November 16th, 1988, and can be found in Season 1, Episode 8, I believe, on YouTube. And it is a segment on... Fraud. In 1981, Lorraine Rondeau was 60 and newly widowed. The $100,000 her husband left her was all the financial support she had. In 1976, a drunk driver had left Michelle Witt disabled, using a wheelchair for the rest of her life, and requiring in-home medical care. She received a $75,000 payout from the insurance company and had to pay $1,200 a month for her care. That payout is nothing. I don't understand. Like, this this thing completely out of her control upended her life. And the insurance gives her $75,000. Well, it was in 1976, so I wonder, with inflation, what that would amount to. I still don't feel like it would be anything. Yeah, and also I think you should account for inflation when you award someone a, a sum for something so life-changing like that. That's true. She's (laughs) going to be alive for a while Mm -hmm. as money loses value. And poor Lorraine is so wholesome in the beginning of the episode. Yeah. She's just, she's putting some roses together from her garden into a vase. She's arranging them to be all pretty and perfect with their different colors. And she's just on point with her whole look, with her, like, coiffed hair. And, like, her clothes aesthetic and everything, she's on point. I'm glad that she's uh, just out there living her... Well, this is some years later now. I'm just going to say I'm glad that she's out there living her life. At the time of the episode? In 1988? I said what I said. (laughs) When Lorraine... And Michelle's neighbor, Stephen Cox, told them he could invest their money with returns of an astonishing 20 to 24 percent. The women trusted him without question, seizing the opportunity to expand their financial well-being. I looked it up, and today, 10 percent is considered a really good turnaround. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure what exactly the expectations were in the 1980s, but... How investing differed. Yeah, but 20 to 24 seems unrealistic. Yeah. I mean, I've had people try to explain shorting to me so many times. And when Raven explained it to me, I understood it for 
about five seconds when she finished her explanation. Like, I, I got it. It's me gone. With the circle of fifths. It's gone now. One time, I suddenly understood the circle of fifths, and then <laughs> I couldn't begin to explain it to you anymore. <laughs> Just need Raven there all of the time mm-hmm. to explain things. <laughs> yeah. She'll never get tired of it, right? <laughs> right, Raven? So, yeah, I'm no financial expert, but I think 20 to 24 percent was was unrealistic. But it was 1984. They couldn't go on the Internet and be like, what's a reasonable investment return? And so they trusted Stephen Cox, who was a popular local boy. He had been an athlete in high school. He played every sport. He was an all star kind of person. And he married his college sweetheart, Deborah, after graduating. But on September 24th, 1984, Cox, Deborah, and his business partner, Eugene Bud Richmond, disappeared. Over 200 angry investors gathered at bankruptcy court, declaring they'd given him a collective $3.5 million in investments. Cox had started his company, SD Cox Investments, in 1982. So it went downhill fast between 1982 and 1984. Sergeant Michael Sweeney, who was interviewed for Unsolved Mysteries and was with the Medford Police Department, told them that he believed that Cox's intentions were good to begin with. He really wanted to make people money. He had had some luck with investments, and he saw it as an opportunity to make other people money as well as himself. However, all his investors received in exchange for their money was a promissory note a glorified IOU. And we know a promissory note is only as good as one's intention to pay it. If we think back to Louis Carlucci, who gave his bride-to-be a promissory note and then skipped out, leaving her financially devastated. Mm. I'd get it notarized, my friends. Yeah, take it to a notary. As an early investor, for three and a half years, Michelle Witt received the expected $1,200 monthly payments from SD Cox, plus 50. But suddenly, 1984, it was all gone. Michelle told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, he seemed to know what he was doing. Then she flicks an eyebrow and says ominously, and I'm sure he did know what he was doing. Before it went spectacularly belly up, the business was so successful that Cox brought his old friend, Eugene Bud Richmond, in as a partner. Ugh. Yeah. Eugene. Slimy. Slimy bastard. Cox and Bud had gone to grade school together, been in school together ever since. Deborah, Cox's wife, also signed on as a partner, putting her name on all kinds of legal documents almost always without the due diligence of reading them ahead of time or doing any sort of records of her own. Okay. I was wondering some about Deborah, about what part she played in all of this. No, the, don't. The episode really doesn't go into Don't be too harsh on Deborah. We'll go into it. Okay. Don't be too harsh all on right. her. I, I've, I have an angle already from which I can have sympathy for her. Um, maybe there is another angle other than than the one that I've already considered. We'll find out after these messages. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) We don't have any messages for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, Deborah and stuff. <laughs> um, uh, so Eugene Bud Richmond, who I'm just going to call Bud, is actually in this segment. I cannot believe that he would show his face. I know. I'm sure you will get, I mean, eventually you will get further into why he is trash, but just for starters, how dare he show his slimy face here? Yeah, in in my opinion, he is defensive and he's always trying to place blame elsewhere and minimize his role in everything. And he told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, whatever Stephen Cox asked me to do, I did. And I just trusted him unequivocally, end quote. He was also like, he was the high school quarterback of the football team. You know, that typical guy that everyone wants to know and be around. And I was like, gross. It made me think of all of the people who sat in the front row of my senior year English class and cheated. And the teacher just adored them. They probably all got A pluses. Mm. They were like, Maybe sort of charismatic, yeah, sort of charismatic, outgoing jock types. Really school spirit. Yeah, that sounds like Go Stephen Royals. Cox. Like Stephen Cox was just like a, it sounds like he was just a really charismatic, successful looking person, which we'll get into that a little bit more. But these guys would also like, they'd say, Go Royals. And the teacher would eat it up and then they would like laugh behind their hands mm. to their buddies. Like they knew that they were manipulating her and that they could get away with it. Like, oh, hey, Stephen Cox. Yeah. Whatever Bud claimed, Sergeant Sweeney with the Medford police said that he was the forceful personality. He says that he was the one who would go out and convince people to invest with them. In the segment, Eugene insists that he told everyone who ever invested that there was a risk, that if the company went under, they'd lose everything. And I love what Unsolved Mysteries did here because right after Eugene gets done saying that he told every investor that he explained the risk to them, they cut straight to Lorraine saying, quote, well, Eugene Richmond is a liar then because he never did. End quote. Yeah, Lorraine. Lorraine is a winner. And I love her. She's just, she just comes straight out. Eugene is a goddamn liar. Yep. So I'm siding with Lorraine, who insisted that she was told that at any point she wanted her money back, she would get every penny immediately. She was told that they had money set aside so that any investor who wanted to pull their funds would get all of their money back. Yeah, Lorraine is one of the three people in this segment that I trust. The other two are Michelle and Robert Stack. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, the others are Michelle and Stack, right? <laughs> <laughs> In the first years, SD Cox Investments was booming. Cox bought an arcade, restaurant, bar, and two jewelry stores with an inventory worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. It would have been easy for an investor to look at Cox and see a successful guy who knew what he was doing. But Eugene implies that 
Cox was putting on a facade of success to get people's attention and thereby their investments. It's like what your classmates were doing, putting on a facade of royal pride so they could get something in return. Eugene said that if people see, I said that I was going to call him Bud, but I just can't do that. I don't know. I'm going to call him Eugene probably or go back and forth between Eugene and Bud. Bud is too familiar. It is a little too familiar. It's like saying friend, and Eugene is no friend of mine. He is not my friend. But Eugene said that if people see a Porsche, they think, wow, that guy's well off. He said Porsche. Oh, if people see a Porsche. Is it Porsche? I don't I always know. thought it was Porsche. I don't care. <laughs> They're expensive cars. <laughs> this is true. I'm never really going to need to know how to say the name of that type of car. But is he saying it wrong? <laughs> I don't know. I guess let us know in the comments. Are there comments? No. <laughs> <laughs> but Eugene, what Eugene says is they see someone with an expensive car and they think, wow, that person's well off. But they don't know that that person could be two payments behind and running on fumes. So then sell the Porsche. But Cox, according to the segment, didn't like to lose. So by 1984, even though the investments were sour and SD Cox investments was just hemorrhaging money... Cox didn't want to let go of any of it. He didn't want to sell the restaurant, the arcade, the jewelry stores. He didn't want to admit that his investment plans were failing. And Eugene straight up says that he didn't think Cox was a good businessman and that he made bad choices. My question is, so why'd you stay in business with him, bud? Yeah, this is the one thing where I agree with Eugene. <laughs> the guy was a bad businessman. And that is where my agreement with Eugene or any tolerance for who he is as a person ends. <laughs> so according to Sergeant Sweeney, and I think as we all expected, paying 20 to 24% interest aided in the company's decline. It just wasn't sustainable. And it meant getting more and more people to invest. So it was almost like an investment pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. uh, with like no guarantee that Cox would actually stick to his word. It reminded me of Schitt's Creek, the Alivu pyramid scheme that mm -hmm. Maura and David start to get into. And it's like eventually everybody in the town is involved and you can't actually rise any further in the ladder because everybody's Everybody involved. Selling. It's really hard to get that champagne Audi. <laughs> <laughs> But once Cox had everyone's money invested, then there weren't any more investments to be had. So there was no way to sustain the business. And then, then we see, so Unsolved Mysteries tried to have people play themselves as much as possible in the reenactments. I can't tell if it's actually Eugene sitting down. I can't tell if Eugene is playing himself. I think it might be an actor because it looks like he might have thicker hair. I do think that it's an actor, and I can tell you why. The reason I think it might be an actor is because Unsolved Mysteries gives us a reenactment where tea-spilling widow Lorraine sits down with Eugene to reenact him coming back to her for more money. 
And I mean, for starters, can't imagine her being okay with that. Yeah, I can't imagine her being willing to sit down with Eugene, like, without, like, leaping forward with her perfectly manicured, like, peach paradise fingernails and gouging out his eyes. (laughs) And in the reenactment, Eugene has returned to her after she was in the hospital, supposedly having come to see if she was all right, which is bullshit. And he asks her if she has any more money and convinces her to invest the last $5,000 of her savings with the company. This is when he apparently already knows that Cox is a bad businessman and that the company is going up. So This is after the reenactment where they show Cox being this hard ass who's bullying Eugene and like you know what you have to do. We need more investors. And Eugene's like, oh, what are we going to do about the investments? And Cox is like, you're going to bring the investors in. Yeah. Apparently we're going to go to widows and bully them out of the rest of their money. And if that wasn't a red flag, then I don't know what is. But then Eugene has the gall to claim that he doesn't remember. If she invested, which is why I don't, I mean, besides the fact that she has every right to gouge his eyes out, the fact that he says he doesn't remember tells me he would not participate in that reenactment. I have in my notes, and then Eugene looks right at us and says he doesn't remember if she gave him more money. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. You're not getting one over me, Eugene. Furthering his deception, Eugene claims that he didn't know that they'd be running until the day they actually ran, but he and Cox had told their employees on the previous Friday to their disappearance that they would be going out of town on business. I think you might be bothered by how you worded that later. You might want to say on the Friday prior to their disappearance. But he and Cox had announced to their employees on the Friday previous to their disappearance that they would be going out of business for the... For <laughs> <laughs> yep, they were going out of business. If only they had announced that. <laughs> that would have been so much better. Just claim bankruptcy. Take your losses. But they announced that they would be going out of town on business and wouldn't return until the next Tuesday, giving them a nice long weekend where nobody would be questioning their whereabouts. But according to Eugene... Cox had said, I'm leaving. And Eugene was like, so what? I have to face this myself? And he, I mean, Cox, you could. Yeah. You, you could, Eugene. But Cox said, you can face it or come with me. So Eugene left. And Eugene tries to make excuses for himself, saying, quote, I was afraid I'd be lynched. End quote. He just didn't want to face consequences. Contrary to Eugene's claims, Sergeant Sweeney fully believed they'd planned for their departure for at least a month. It wasn't until that next Tuesday, when they didn't return, that an employee reported them missing. At that point, they discovered that Cox had cleaned out $200,000 worth of jewelry, coins, and gems from the company's safe and took the floppy disks containing all their business records. In addition, as we said, all of the investments were gone. Cox Eugene and the pregnant Deborah, Stephen Cox, loaded Eugene, a pregnant Deborah, 
and their other child into a truck and left for Hawaii. The episode did not mention that they had any children. I found that they had children. Hmm. They had... Didn't mention that she was pregnant either. They had one child at the time, and yes, she was somewhat early on in, in a pregnancy. And you know what? If I had to go into hiding, I'd go to Hawaii too. <laughs> I can't say they didn't know how to hide in style. I just think the idea of them having a good time in the gorgeous land of Hawaii, where everything just feels so calm and peaceful and warm and safe, it makes me mad. Eugene doesn't deserve it, nor well, does Cox. Well, 10 months later, in July of 1985, the police in Medford had a surprising visitor, Deborah. She had gotten an attorney and agreed to cooperate with the authorities. She herself was not a wanted fugitive, but she had learned that Stephen Cox was. And how how would she not have known that before when they fled? She was very naive, and okay. I think she lacked due diligence a lot. I think she was trusting, but we never actually really hear from her in any capacity, so it's kind of hard to say. That was sort of a theme with the whole segment is how trusting people used to be. Like your neighbor sends someone to your house who's like, invest money with us. We're charismatic. We're nice. We'll get you 25%. And you just give them the money. You can't do that anymore. Now you would be considered ignorant it, sh it should be okay to be trusting. It should be okay to trust other people. It's just tragic. <laughs> Despite being naive, Deborah had realized that there was something very wrong and that her husband probably wasn't telling her the whole truth. And so, although she wasn't wanted on any sort of charges, she did know that she was wanted for information. Later in 1989, Deborah told the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that she didn't know the source of the funds Cox used to support the family. But she had signed documents to become co-owner of 14 parcels of real estate, a partner in two partnerships, and an officer at four corporations. There were other documents on which her signature had been forged. Despite signing so many documents, Deborah told the court that she did not collaborate or talk business with Stephen. She didn't ask questions or keep records of her interactions with his endeavors. Deborah explained that in 1984, Stephen had loaded up the family and taken them to Monterey, California, saying he was trying to get away from angry creditors. They then flew to Hawaii and lived there as fugitives for several months. After the baby was born in 1985, they returned to California. In July, she learned that the FBI was about to issue a warrant for her arrest, and that's when she left Stephen, returned to Oregon, and met with government officials. How did, how, how did she find out that the FBI was going to issue a warrant? As time went on, I'm sure she realized more and more that the flight from creditors story wasn't true. She might have actually finally started asking questions, having these conversations, being like, you need to start telling me what's actually happening. Within a week of Deborah's return to Medford, Eugene made arrangements to surrender himself and be processed for the fugitive warrants that were out for him. 
He agreed to be interviewed by police, but in the interview, he wouldn't give any information because he didn't want to incriminate himself. And he couldn't say anything about Cox without incriminating himself. So it was just a lot of no comment. He couldn't give them any information on Stephen Cox without also incriminating himself. Sounds awfully criminal. (laughs) The only information they did get from Eugene was that Cox had supposedly started working with a mysterious man in 1983 who invested hundreds of thousands of dollars and, as a security in his investment, took out a life insurance policy on Stephen Cox. That is a wild thing to agree to. Yes. Although I don't know if you even have to agree to someone taking life insurance out on you. I've never tried to take life insurance out on anybody. It's also not true. So. (laughs) Well. In September of 1985, Eugene pleaded guilty to sale of unregistered securities. He was given a lie detector test to try to determine how much of the $3.5 million could be recovered. Nothing really came out of that. But the pre-sentencing committee recommended that he serve 20 years with an eligibility for parole in three. Eugene says that before they ran, he told Cox, let's just shut it down and file for bankruptcy. He said that Cox couldn't because of that investor who had taken out a life insurance policy on him. He said that he would hurt him and his family. But Sergeant Sweeney and the police knew But Sergeant Sweeney and the police actually knew who this investor was and were aware of the supposed threat against Cox. Before Eugene? Apparently. So in Sweeney's words, quote, the individual would have to be a fool to come back and kill Stephen Cox, end quote. Because they would know that the police knew about them? Yeah. Whoa. So there's not more details about who this person was? But the police were aware of this investor, and I don't know if there was truly a life insurance policy or anything, but this person who put in hundreds of thousands of dollars wherever they were coming from in life, the police knew about them and would be like, oh, it was you. This investor sounds like a much better, quote, businessman (laughs) than Cox. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Keeping their name out of the police's mouth. (laughs) After returning, Eugene pled guilty to racketeering and served two years in prison. Now, what would be a just punishment for him? Because I'm thinking any time... Okay, so I'm not for jail, not for prison. So what I'm thinking is that every time he tries to make a joke, people don't laugh at it. (laughs) Just for, for, I don't know, however long his community thinks it will take for him to acknowledge his wrongdoing, they do not laugh at his jokes. (laughs) Well, first I was thinking, like, they won't acknowledge him at all, but that would be like solitary confinement, which is cruel, so, you know. (laughs) Gotta have some heart. (laughs) Even if I despise him. At the closing of the segment, Lorraine says, speaks directly to Cox, should he be listening, turn yourself in and face the people you hurt. These are neighbors he knew his entire life. Sergeant Sweeney says that short of Cox winning the lottery, he didn't see any way that he'd ever be able to return the investor's losses. (laughs) 
Eugene says some bullshit about Cox being the one who's in prison because he's doing time until he returns and faces the consequences because he could be recognized at any moment, which is bullshit. He's out there living his life. He's not facing repercussions, which aren't necessarily prison. And I'll get into my thinking in, <laughs> in, later on. Then there's a pretty cool series of images with some different hairstyles and facial hair that he could possibly oh, yeah. use them to describe himself. They got technological. Yeah. But it wasn't someone recognizing him that got Stephen Cox caught. It was his own cagey behavior and a discerning lodge manager turned amateur sleuth. Edna Reed was the lodge manager at Lake Mead Lodge in Nevada. Oh, Edna. 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 I'm here for Edna. Yeah, girl. In December of 1988, a man going by the name John Strauss had checked into the lodge. Edna noticed that he wasn't the average guest. Was he wearing a toupee? <laughs> I don't know. Actually, I can't answer that question. That's going to remain a mystery. <laughs> So sorry, everyone. <laughs> but Edna found it suspicious that this Mr. Strauss never left his hotel room during the day. Lake Mead was a tourist destination, so for someone to stick to their hotel room, leaving only at night, was odd. He was either a man on the run or a vampire. Uh-huh. Was, <laughs> was he a vampire? No. Oh. He's not a vampire. Oh. Staff noticed also that the license plate on the car that he was driving didn't match the one he wrote on the registration, which is like, why? Right? How blaringly obvious could you get? And you, I mean, nowadays you write it on there so that you can park there. Yeah, surprisingly, I don't think that was the case at the time because <laughs> it was in some ways better, but sus. So Edna couldn't quite put her finger finger. <laughs> Edna couldn't quite put her finger on what it was, but she knew there was something questionable going on. After about five days at the lodge, Edna saw their mysterious guest make a rare daylight outing. He was carrying a trash bag, but instead of dropping it in the bin right out front of his room, room 20, he walked all the way down to room 35 and put it in their outdoor bin. That is very strange. Yeah, Edna agreed. So she decided to empty that bin herself. And when she did, she found a crumpled up letter. And quote, like any curious female, I read the letter. End quote. Yes, curious females. Okay. I don't usually like gendered stereotypes, but Edna got me there. <laughs> she got me with that one. <laughs> it's just like usually it's like snoopy naggy mm -hmm. but now, you know what this is a virtue this is <laughs> curiosity it's paying attention to your community it's looking out for the people around you it's being a good member of a group i will say that Newspapers called her a maid, a curious maid or a snoopy maid or things like that, which I thought was so rude. 
because she was the lodge manager. Thank you very much. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with being a maid. No, she's, but it was she's, so diminishing. She's a woman, Athena. She <laughs> must be there to clean. Right. Oh my god. But also, thank you to people who clean hotels. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with being a maid, but to diminish her role as lodge manager just because she's a woman who took out the trash to being a maid was just super... It was bad reporting. It was misogynistic. Yeah. It was misogyny. You can't find much of what was in the letter, but Unsolved Mysteries showed an image of the letter, so I paused it to write down what I could see (laughs) and what I could make out. And this is what I think it said. This is just some of it also. Um, But quote, I don't really have the confidence that you really want to hear from me. It would appear that I have disrupted your life one more time. I am truly sorry for this. The Unsolved Mystery Show was really a bombshell for me. Oh, snap. Any hardship that has caused you, I wish could be changed. End quote. That is the most poor me letter I have ever heard. Yes, it's not... Any hardship that I have caused you, I wish could be changed. It is any hardship that has caused you, I wish could be changed. That pesky television show mm-hmm. that is showing everybody that I did shitty things. Not my actions, but the consequences I wish could be, you know, I wish we could all just avoid those. Edna showed the letter to her husband, and they decided together to contact the authorities. Edna passed the suspicious letter on to the Lake Mead Park Rangers because it was a park. So it was the park rangers, not the police who were in charge. Yay, park rangers. And they ran a check on the car. I'm down with the park rangers. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Love a park ranger. for them. They ran a check on the car and found that it did not belong to a John Strauss. So... They went to the lodge the next day to see if they could identify who he really was, but he had left 15 to 20 minutes before they arrived. Wow. But the next day, a ranger saw the car and pulled him over. The driver handed over a driver's license in the name of Robert Davis. Now they knew there was something sketchy going on. Because this wasn't John Strauss, and it probably wasn't Robert Davis either. They checked the name and date of birth and discovered it was a stolen identity and an alias for someone named Stephen Cox, Mm. who had a federal fugitive warrant out for his arrest. He was arrested on December 14th, 1988, and turned over to the FBI. Found in his car was a small fortune suitcases filled with jewelry, coins, and baseball cards, and thousands of dollars in cold, hard cash. Of the baseball cards, one single Mickey Mantle card was worth $4,000 alone. So it sounds like he chose money, wealth, over his family and over freedom, really. Ain't that wild? It turned out Cox had been living in Boise, Idaho, before fleeing to Nevada after the segment aired. After being apprehended, he was turned to Oregon to stand trial. He was afraid someone would recognize the mustache or the beard (laughs) from one of Unsolved Mysteries' altered photographs of what he might look like now. Or their toupee was just too on Mm -hmm. point for him to feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. 
Stephen Cox was found guilty of racketeering and fraud and sentenced to 20 years in prison. But according to different sources, he served two or three. What? Based on the source that you're looking at, he served either two or three of those 20 years in prison before being released. And here's the thing. Here's what they should have done. Rather than put him or Eugene in prison, they should have made them both go to nursing school and become Michelle Witt's pro bono home care nurses for the rest of their lives. (laughs) Okay. And they should have mowed Lorraine's lawn and babysat for families around the community who had to work long hours to make up for their lost investments. 200 plus people. They should have had to give back to that community that they harmed. Yes. But Eugene also served prison time, about two years as well. Deborah wasn't charged with these crimes, but did have an involuntary bankruptcy proceeding filed against her, which is when she spoke to the Supreme Court in 1989. She tried to get a discharge releasing her of liability, but the court found that despite being somewhat a victim of her husband, she she was an intelligent, educated person, and quote, a self-imposed curtain of ignorance was an inadequate legal justification, end quote. Burn. <laughs> they found that it was her duty as a partner to keep records, so she was basically forced into bankruptcy because she didn't pay enough attention. This is where I'm kind of torn on her because I, I've i said before how I've been in a relationship where I just sort of turned a blind eye because I was afraid of the alternative. And so I I just, I don't know what her relationship with him was like. Like if she, she felt unsafe or insecure or isolated and felt like this was what she needed to do to survive, then, you know, I, I definitely feel for that. I understand that. I don't think it's that complex. I think it was She was a teacher, and then when she had her first child, she became a stay-at-home mom. And so her husband was the breadwinner. This was early 1980s. 1980 was when they had their first kid. So it was just a matter, I think, of she stays home and takes care of the kids, and he's he's a businessman. He's making money. And yes, she's going to support him in his endeavors. He needs a co-signer. Yeah, she'll co-sign because he's taking care of the family. But I think it, it definitely got to a point where she was like, what you've told me all this time isn't true. And it was somewhere along that realization that she left because that wasn't what she signed up for. And then, you know, being forced into bankruptcy, honestly, is bullshit because capitalism sucks. And she shouldn't have to deal with that. At the same time, read what you're signing, I guess. (laughs) Ask questions. Uh, A self-imposed curtain of ignorance is an inadequate legal justification. (laughs) Sadly, the funds that were recuperated in apprehending Stephen Cox were used up in the effort to find the rest of them. What? Yeah. Uh, I don't understand what this means, but a Cox Trust attorney named Jeff Campbell worked for years to track down the Cox assets 
to recuperate the costs. In the end, he asked the bankruptcy court to award him 125000 of the remaining 165000 that remained in the trust. Why? Because he had done the work? I don't know. But there were 24 investors in court that day who just watched their money get handed over to Jeff Campbell. Are you kidding me? I know. I don't understand it. That... No. Yeah. As far as I can tell, none of the investors ever got anything back. Well, that makes me extra glad that the episode starts showing Lorraine Lorraine and Michelle just living their lives. Mm. Because it means that they... They did okay. Their way, yeah. Despite their money being stolen, they did okay. Yeah. Because it aired four years after he disappeared, and they were still, you know, still had their home, still had their care, and all of that. I cannot believe that bullshit. And <laughs> Cox didn't learn his lesson because in 2005, he was arrested in Idaho on charges of grand theft, forgery, computer crime, and parole violation. Wow. So back at the start, Michelle was right. He did know what he was doing. He knew what he was doing. He found a way to make a lot of money fast. And I guess that was kind of addictive. And uh, he went to prison until 2013, at which time he was released. And there's not any information after that. So I just hope that Lorraine and Michelle and the rest of the community had tons of support, and that Deborah and his kids were good despite being influenced by his bullshittery. I mean, Deborah was really led astray. I don't think she knew what his motives were. I don't I don't think she knew. So, you know, that sucks for her a lot. And I just hope they were all okay. The moral of the story is don't steal from your neighbors. Why? Because it's wrong. Because it's really really nasty because it's mean and we should just care about each other and take care of each other and like don't be so prideful that you can't sell your restaurant when it's hemorrhaging money and uh, don't steal from people basically evolve to exist in a community we are community oriented we need each other we do need each other money is not enough money is not enough full stop Thanks for joining us for another episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be here all week. (laughs) No, we won't. (laughs) Uh, Probably not for another several weeks, in fact. Several. I hope it's not several. (laughs) To me, several always means seven. Because it has three of the same (laughs) letters. (laughs) Actually, maybe maybe four. (laughs) So... (laughs) But I want to get some nice, some nice cute lights to put up in this closet, make it a little cozier and some more, some better soundproofing, a little more fun for recording and Kasher, more soundproofing and whatnot. And we'll be back in this closet for more recording, more stories, more solved mysteries, solved mysteries. So join us next time for You Solved a Mystery. Thank you.